Around the altar, following the path of the sun, from the east to the south to the west and back to the east, a celebration of Mithras, the sun god. Gee, I wonder. Is our worshipful master represented by the sun actually a representation of Mithras? Interestingly, Mithras is always identified by wearing a Phrygian cap, which is a red hat, little red hat, um, which actually uh, had a small role in the American Revolution, believe it or not, uh, where it was hoisted up on liberty poles. They put a, a red cap on top of the liberty pole and hoisted it up, and that was the meeting place for all free people. Uh, and our, which is, yeah, again, interesting. And our worshipful master may be known by wearing a hat, a cap, or some suitable covering. Weird. A Phrygian cap was a symbol of, there it is, freedom and liberty, and sometimes referred to as a liberty cap. Is this our man freeborn requirement? The initiate to the mysteries of Mithras was tested through seven degrees of trials and tribulations, trials so arduous that at times it even led to the death of the candidate. Is this where we get the term, you have a rough and rugged road to travel where you will meet with ruffians and may lose your life? The candidate was tested by water and by fire. Think about our oaths, my body buried between high and low water mark. My, bo my bowels taken dense and burnt to ashes. Uh, weird. The candidate was led into a dark cavern enveloped in darkness, just like the uh, first one we read. What was it? The uh, Dionysian heifers. Um, so led to a dark cavern enveloped in darkness where he was tormented by all kinds of wild beasts and given to the beasts of the field and the vultures of the air as prey. Towards the end of the degrees, he was buried for many days up to his neck in snow once again, buried between high and low watermark. The candidate was offered a crown to which he was to refuse and state that Mithras alone is his crown. The true Mason strives to circumscribe his desires and passions so that his spiritual soul can overcome his earthly physical body. That theme of being offered a crown shows up in the Illuminati's initiation rituals, um, although in a slightly different form. In the finality of the degree, the candidate was led from darkness to light, where he found himself in the presence of Archimagus, the chief priest, and the assistant dispensers of light. It was here that the candidate received the sacred word, which included the ineffable name of God and was instructed in the secret doctrines of Mithraism. Is this not our degree system where the candidate is brought from darkness to light and into the presence of the worshipful master surrounded by the brethren and is then presented with Masonic light, the grip, and the word. And here, this bit's interesting. Do we not learn the ineffable name of God in the Holy Royal Arch? And boy, there was some controversy over that during the 80s. Um, there, the so-called name of God that they're talking about there used to be Jabulon, which is said uh and it must there must have been something to it because they eventually changed this uh, because the controversy got to be too great they got too much attention on them um okay i'm gonna pass it to you in a second here we'll finish with this uh oh and by the way jabulon also is said to be used in the ordo templi orientis the oto 
Crowley. So this is apparently um, the word that they're told is the real name, the true name of God, or were anyway, before they changed it, allegedly, allegedly changed it. Um, and the, the way it goes is they can't say it out loud unless they're in the presence of two other uh, of their kind, royal archmasons. Uh, they're, they're forbidden from saying it, something like that. That way they can't reveal it unless there's some brothers around to hold them in check, right? Um, so it's, it tells you it's, like, it's a three-part name, Ja Bal on and this allegedly the, the source of the controversy with this was that it was the three parts were jaw as in jehovah bull as in ball like ball worship uh you know bail ball b-a-a-l um and then on was alleged to be a uh derivation of osiris so worshiping a three-headed god made up of the Jewish, Hebrew, uh, God, uh, Baal, and Osiris. And yeah, according to the Wikipedia article here, they, they have one on this. After persistent, strong criticism in the popular press, the Supreme Grand Chapter of England excised the word from its royal arch ritual in 1989 and replaced it with a choice between two forms of the tetragrammaton. I don't know if I'd buy that. I bet you they just moved it up to a different degree. Royal Arch is like somewhere in the middle, if I remember right. It's like 17th or 18th or something. Uh, forget. Seventh. Sorry, seventh. Yeah, I, I bet you they, they just they didn't remove it. They just bumped it up. Such a joke, man. Really creepy. All right. Um, I'm out of here. We got more that we'll continue looking into. I want to I want to actually read this book. Uh, oh, dang it. Where'd that go? I had it up. Oh, here. The Keys of This Blood by Malachi Martin. Uh, that was another book that uh, Bill Cooper mentioned. Martin, and it says, Martin wrote this book as a geopolitical and georeligious analysis of the last decades of the 20th century. He identifies this period as the millennium endgame for a new world order, which has three main contenders, those being the Pope, the church, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, communism, and finally the capitalist West. I assume secular West. Um, so it talks about the apparent battle going on between those three entities for the control of one world government. I'm curious what he says. I'm going to see if I can find an ebook copy of this and maybe we'll cover that tomorrow. All right. I'm out of here. I'll see you then. Bye-bye. All right. So um, before we jump into our show prep, I wanted to show you guys a, very cute picture of Bobo, who, by the way, is sitting on my desk chair next to me. So this was Bobo yesterday at Daddy's desk, and she's sitting on top of the keyboard watching Mo's show. You can see Mo's show is here. 
<laughs> she's on the keyboard and she's apparently looking up a bizarre form of schizophrenia and gene editing and antibodies and a gene function. That's how smart Bobo is. If we zoom in closely here, you can see on the screen, Bobo's researching all kinds of stuff that you guys don't even know about. Look at her. <laughs> That's what Bobo was researching. Isn't that neat? All right, anyway, <laughs> I don't actually know. I mean, I think Bobo just stepped on random keys or something, and I think he had already been looking into this or something, and I think she just sat on the keyboard and hit enter. So maybe she's not that smart. Well, of course, Bobo's smart. Of course, Bobo, of course you are. You're a sweet baby. Bobo is so cute. She's just sitting next to me. And I'm petting her soft head. If you didn't know, Bobo's head is very soft. It's very soft. I don't know why or how, but it is. That's Bobo. So that was very funny. <laughs> Bobo is the controller of the universe. That's probably true. And Bobo conspires with Buddy and Brutus, the other two. Between the three of them, God only knows what they do. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, tonight's show is called The Controllers. We're going to get into a paper that was uh, published by Martin Cannon. And um, after he published this, he kind of, um, you didn't hear from him for a while, and then he recanted it and basically said that he started sending like requests to everybody that had published it to take it down. And he said something like, oh, um, this has brought me nothing but trouble. But, and it was such a well done paper too, that I, I wonder who got to him, right? I mean, why was he, it's a, a research paper. It's a 60 page research paper called The Controllers, and it's about mind control and a couple other things. Um, and so he ends up recanting this, and uh, it's just very, um, it's very bizarre that he does this, and he ends up contacting all these different websites that have it up, requesting that they take it down. Now it is very hard to find any um, surviving copies of this, uh, at all, because most people ended up having to take it down. And so there's only a couple of these um, still in circulation. And so that's where, where we're going to go with this tonight. We're going to continue. We're going to pick up where we left off yesterday with gang stalking as community policing, because I just think that they're doing this for a reason now. Like they, they are pushing hard to uh, abolish the police, right? Um, the, uh, the real police and put forward something along the lines of community policing. And I want people to understand what that is, where it comes from, and how they had been using this in the past. Um, and it just seems to me like a very uh, neo-Stasi control system, which of course it is. So um, in other news, I should be going on the Michael Cisco show um, possibly 
March 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's not confirmed yet. That's tentative. That's a probably. So um, look forward to that. You can see me there. And I also have a couple people that might be coming on my show as a guest in the near future. All right. So yes, it's exactly what it is, uh, Cynthia. Mob rule only without police. That's right. And what it is is giving certain people uh, in the neighborhood you know, special privileges, right, to harass other people that they don't like. And it's a very insidious thing because it turns neighbor against neighbor, like community against community. And that just, that reminded me of something that Jesus talked about, right, that this is what would end up happening. It would turn neighbor against neighbor, and that would be like kind of similar to like the end times. All right, so there's lots of stuff that we're going to cover tonight, um, and I hope that you guys find this interesting. I sort of injured my neck, I guess. Um, I'm having problems with this all day. So, like, when I turn my neck a certain way, it gets, like, really stiff and it hurts, and it feels like it's in my back, in that one area that you can't reach with your hand going from the back or the top. So it's, like, right in the middle of my back, right under my neck, and I think that's like where the problem is. So if I turn my head to the left, it hurts. I turn my neck to like to the right, and that hurts. I don't know why that's happening, but probably I've been exercising too much and overdoing it. So who knows, or I might have slept funny. That could be it also. So hopefully, I tried rolling my back out with the roller earlier, but it's just like in such a weird spot. I don't think that that really helped. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. I'm going to try taking an Advil after the show. Yeah, I, that's the problem. I don't stretch as, mu as much as I should. And that's how I end up hurting myself. <laughs> a good pillow is important. That's right. And I have this like, it's sort of like a flat, small pillow. I don't like it. I want to get a new one. I think I want to get a my pillow. <laughs> because they get good reviews, you know? If anyone has a my pillow and you like it, let me know. Um, put a one into live chat. And that's something I'll definitely look into. All right, so with that being said, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. Yes, Mo, that's exactly what it is. You have like these knots. I can feel them, and you have to get somebody to rub them out. <clears throat> Hint, very, very hint. funny. <laughs> okay. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and a secret proceedings. You guys know what this represents? Well, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. What's going on, You'll find out. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy. America is governed by Americans. Infiltration instead of invasion. 
on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice. The corporate media in our country is no longer involved in journalism. For them, it's a war. And for them, nothing at all is out of bounds. Man will be what he was born to be. Free and independent. I love that. I love that intro. Every time I listen to it, I'm happy. Um, I love St. John Chrysostom also. So I have uh, him, um, the, uh, the icons of him tonight. And you know, the liturgy um, and the Orthodox services were basically the entire service was written by him. And same with, I think, a lot of the Catholic service as well. So that's, he's obviously a very important church father. Um, and I like, uh, I like his readings too. So that, you know, that his name means golden mouth because he is such a good public speaker. I think that's so uh, fantastic. And um, he's just a really cool guy. So uh, that's um, what I wanted to use for the icons today. Uh, we're going to listen to, I forget which psalm I put in here. It might be Psalm 1, and because uh, I think she told me she wanted me to play that one. She's not feeling good, little Reed, so she hasn't done any new psalms, but these are. this is one that we did a couple weeks ago, and she said to play that one tonight. She's, um, you know, she has my blood disorder, and it makes you very fatigued and stuff, and so she's been, you know, just very tired after school, and um, I remember that when I was her age, I remember feeling like that. So I'm not going to push her to do it um, unless she's uh, feeling good. <laughs> okay. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his way in the law of the Lord, and his law doth of meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His loaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do a quick reading of uh, St. John Chrysostom. 
that I wanted to share. Um, oh, okay. So you order a my pillow by your weight. That's very interesting. It looks like my pillows have been getting good, um, pretty good reviews from you guys in live chat. Just not to order one that's too firm. Yeah, I don't like them if they're too firm either. But I don't like the the flat softies either. I want something that's like supportive, you know. Um, okay, so. I will. Oh, and then there's an RSBN promo code to get 66% off score. All right. <laughs> okay. And you know what? We got to support Mike Lindell, right? He's supporting us and he's been fighting for us and for our uh, free and fair elections. So why not support him as well? All right. So, um, Anyways, uh, I'm going to read this from St. John's homilies, homily one. Now, he wrote these because there in the early church, there were Christians or uh, new converts that thought it was okay to like, you know, celebrate the Jewish festivals and go into their temple and, and all that. And um, started trying to like Judaize the early church. And St. John was very much against this. And there were uh, good reasons for this. He actually cites Jewish prophets and what they themselves said about what was going on with the Jewish people and what would happen with them, where they would basically turn their back on their savior, that the entire Torah talks about, it's all about Jesus coming. And then, they turn their backs on him. They reject him. They reject all of the times that God helps them. And it's this obstinate, defiant attitude of we're going to do what we want. So they're not keeping the laws when they're supposed to. And then when they're not supposed to, they're, they're you know, religiously holding to these laws when it doesn't even matter anymore. So that's the other thing. Um, that's going on uh, at the time that he writes this. And you also have to understand it's the fourth century Antioch. So it's not like, um, you know, you have to understand what was happening culturally at that time. So I'm just going to read an excerpt from this. He is saying here, um, these three witnesses gave us proof enough. And, and we're now down to part two of the homily. But I was not satisfied with prophets, nor did I settle for apostles. I mounted to the heavens and gave you as proof the chorus of angels as they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill among men. Again, you heard the seraphim as they shuddered and cried in astonishment. Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, all the earth is filled with his glory. And I also uh, gave you the cherubim who who exclaimed, blessed be his glory in his dwelling. So there were three witnesses on earth and three in heaven who made it clear that God's glory cannot be approached. For the rest, proof was beyond dispute. There was great applause. The audience warmed with enthusiasm. The assembly came aflame. I did rejoice at this, yet my joy was not because praise was coming to me but because glory was coming to my master. For that applause and praise showed the love you have for God in your souls. 
If a servant loves his master and hears someone speak in praise of that master, his heart becomes a flame with a love for him who speaks. This is because the servant loves his master. You acted just that way when I spoke by the abundance of your applause and showed clearly your abundant love for the master. And so I wanted again today to engage in that contest for if the enemies of the truth never have enough of blaspheming our benefactor, then we must be all the more tireless in praising the God of all. But what am I to do? Another very serious illness calls for any cure my words can bring, an illness which has become implanted in the body of the church. We must first root this ailment out and then take thought for matters outside. We must first cure our own and then be concerned for others who are strangers. What is this disease? The festivals of the pitiful and miserable Jews are soon to march upon us one after another in quick succession. The feasts of trumpets and tabernacles, the fasts, there are many in our ranks who say they think as we do, yet some of these are going to watch the festivals and others will join the Jews in keeping their feasts and observing their fasts. I wish to drive this perverse custom from the church right now. My homilies against the Enomayans can be put off to another time and the postponement would cause no harm. But now that the Jewish festivals are close by and at the very door, if I should fail to cure those who are sick with the Judaizing disease, I am afraid that because of their ill-suited association and deep ignorance, some Christians may partake in the Jews' transgressions. What he was saying is that they are transgressing God and what they are doing. Once they have done, because they have not repented, nor have they accepted Jesus Christ. Once they have done so, I fear my homilies on these transgressions will be in vain. For if they hear no word from me today, they will then join the Jews in their fasts. Once they have committed this sin, it will be useless for me to apply the remedy. And so it is that I hasten to anticipate this danger and prevent it. That is what a physician does. They first check the disease, which is our most urgent and acute. But the danger from this sickness is very closely related to the danger from the other. Since the Enomayans impiety is akin to that of the Jews, my present conflict is akin to my other one. And there is a kinship because the Jews and Enomayans make the same accusation. And what charges do the Jews make? that he called God his own father and so made himself equal to God. The Enomayans also make this charge. I should not say they make this charge. They even flout out the phrase equal to God and what it connotes by the resolve to reject it even if they do not physically erase it. But do not be surprised that I call the Jews pitiable they really are pitiable and miserable. When so many blessings from heaven came into their hands, they thrust them aside and were at great pains to reject them. The morning sun of justice arose for them, but they thrust aside its rays and still sit in darkness. We who were nurtured by darkness drew the light to ourselves and were freed from their 
from the gloom of their error. They were the branches of that holy root, but those branches were broken. We had no share in the root, but we did reap the fruit of godliness. From their childhood, they read the prophets, but they crucified him who the prophets had foretold. We did not hear the divine prophecies, but we did worship whom him whom they prophesied. And so they are pitiful because they rejected the blessings which were sent to them, while others seized hold of these blessings and drew them to themselves. Although those Jews had been called to the adoption of sons, they fell to kinship with dogs. We who were dogs received the strength through God's grace to put aside the irrational nature which was ours and to rise to the honor of sons. How do I prove this? Christ said, quote, it is no fair to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs, unquote. Christ was speaking to the Canaanite woman when he called the Jews children and the Gentiles dogs. But see how thereafter the order was changed about. They became dogs and we became the children. Paul said of the Jews, quote, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, unquote. Did you see how those who at first were children became dogs? Do you wish to find out how we who were first dogs became children? Quote, but to as many as received him, he gave the power of becoming sons of God. Nothing is more miserable than those people who never failed to attack their own salvation. When there was need to observe the law, they trampled it underfoot. Now that the law has ceased to bind, they obstinately strive to observe it. What could be more pitiable than those who provoke God, not only by transgressing the law, but also by keeping it? On this account, Stephen said, quote, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit, unquote. Okay, so um, apparently he walked by and unplugged me. <laughs> my entire internet cord, my ethernet cord. All right, can you guys hear me now? Well, I was like on a roll there. I don't know when that actually happened. How long have we been without sound? Stiff neck, uncircumcised of heart, exactly. Um, 
Am I still muted? No, I shouldn't be. Five by five now. Okay, very good. All right. Um, okay, so I'm not sure how much that y'all missed of that, but basically what I'm trying to say is that this is the, the problem with people who are rejecting the blessings of God. No. Well, don't unplug my cords again with your walking. <laughs> and um, so anyways, that's um, St. John Chrysostom's homily one. You can read the rest of that for yourself. Um, and basically what this is saying is that you don't want to be like those who are in error, right? And who are rejecting the blessings God is giving to them and then deciding to do things on their own. That kind of arrogance. I am chosen so I can do whatever I want or I can be saved by my good works. That is not true. That's not true at all. You're not saved by your good works. You are saved by the grace of God and that alone. You can't buy your way into heaven. Anyways, we go back into the show prep now. All right. He's got always got to be messing with my cameras and moving things around and unplugging my cord. What a stinker. <laughs> All right, so the point that I'm making is that this is the mindset of the Luciferian. And uh, in, in that homily, St. John Chrysostom calls the synagogue a theater. He said it's nothing more than a theater. They are making performative, um, it's, they're making performance of their worship of God, and they're doing so for that self-gratification purposes, not because they actually want to honor him. If they wanted to honor God, they never would have rejected his son, which their prophets foretold for 400 years before he came. Okay, so um, we're going to be talking about the controllers. This graphic shows this kind of hand, right, with the all-seeing eye that the secret societies use, and you can see it hovering over the globe, right? As if it was guiding and controlling the world. Obviously, that basically describes what Satan does. And don't forget, Satan is the power of the air. He's the prince of the air. So the fact that this is kind of above the earth in the air, I don't think that that is... Um, I don't think that's a mistake. It says hostile takeover, new world order. That's absolutely correct. And then this um, is a very good picture as it depicts sort of um, what society has become, right? These people who are just um, looking at uh, these, they just become, right, uh, TVs, walking programmed entities programmed by mass media and mass consumer culture. And I thought that was a um, kind of a perfect, uh, perfect graphic here to, to describe. And we did, I also, this thing that we see where 
young people especially walking around hunched over looking with their faces buried in their phones they're not looking up at the sky they're not paying attention to what's going on in the world around them and because they spend so much time with their head and their backs hunched over to look at this black mirror they end up developing this weird thing like it's a weird kind of callousy bone that comes out of the backs of their necks that is so disturbing I mean, geez. And here's another one. And I think this is also a kind of a good portrayal. You've got the hands coming out from behind a robe and you have these strings coming down, kind of controlling the world here, right? And these strings represent sort of astral um, energy. And, you know, sort of an unseen and invisible presence, right? An invisible force that is controlling and guiding world events. That is what the Satanists are doing. It's a very good way, I think, to depict that and how it works. Okay, so now we're going to get, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off yesterday. Um, oh, okay, before we get into that, I had to share this because I thought this was bizarre. All right, this came out today from CNN. A puppy born with six legs is a miracle, that hospital says. Look at this puppy. He was born with six legs. Isn't that wild? That's a um, skipper, a border collie, a border collie in Australian shepherd mix was born naturally on February 16th during a big snowstorm and he's born with six legs. Like other newborn puppies, Skipper likes to eat, drink water and go to the bathroom. But the border collie and Australian shepherd mix is unique from the rest of her litter. She was born with six legs. This is a miracle named Skipper, literally. Um, Neil Veter Veterinary Hospital in Oklahoma wrote on its Facebook page on February 21st. She has survived longer than we suspect any other canine has at just four days old, published research does not indicate one has been born alive with her combination of congenital conditions. You might notice she looks a little different, six legs. Skipper was born naturally along with eight brothers and sisters on February 16 in Oklahoma during a big snowstorm, Dr. Tina Neal, owner of the Neal Veterinary Hospital told CNN. After the storm, Neil said Kipper's owners brought her into the hospital so vets could examine her. Our doctors knew that we needed further imaging to determine a diagnosis, so we donated the service of an abdominal ultrasound, Neil told CNN. The ultrasound, along with radiographs, showed that she had two types of congenital disorders, one called monocephalus dipyagus and monocephalus uh, Rachyphagus, diprachius, trepipus, which means she has one head and chest cavity, but two pelvic regions, 
two lower urinary tracts, two reproductive regions, two tails, and six legs, among other things. Neil said Skipper was likely part of a twin in utero, and when the fertilized egg tried to split, it didn't fully separate. Wow. So only the back half of her body was able to duplicate, Neil said. She also has signs of spina bifida along her spine. One week after birth, Neil said Skipper is thriving. She is a strong girl. She loves to nurse and is able to scoot around just like a regular puppy, Neil said. We think that she may have some things to overcome, but she is determined right now and thriving. Our veterinarians and her family don't see any reason not to give her the best chance of a great life. However, the vets are still monitoring Skipper given the, un, uh, the uniqueness of her situation. So that's pretty cool. That puppy is, you know, she's got some challenges. I'm gonna show the picture again so you can see the, the basically she's got, you know, two bottoms. She's got two legs here, two legs here. And then at the top, she's got the regular two paws. And she also has two tails two urinary tracts, which means she's going to be peeing from two sides, um, I, I think, I presume. Here's another related article, green puppy born with a litter of white siblings in Italy. So we've got green puppies being born, puppies with six legs and two tails. What's going on? <laughs> we will continue to research her conditions monitor her development during uh, rechecks and help keep Skipper pain-free and comfortable for the rest of her life. The vet hospital wrote on its Facebook post, she is doing well at home now. So that's pretty cool. Um, and this is the green puppy, which is um, from October of 2020. Just very interesting. I don't know what would cause a puppy to be born green. As a sheep farmer, Christian Malochi might be accustomed to the occasional black sheep among his flock, but nothing could have prepared him for a green dog. Earlier this month, Malochi's dog, Spletchia, gave birth to a litter of five puppies, four of whom were white like their mixed breed mother. The last, a male, was covered in green fur. The rest of the litter... Um, born October 9th on the Italian island of Sardinia, are up for adoption. Pistachio, <laughs> such a cute name, will be staying with Malochi and his family. The farmer told CNN, we are keeping him. He arrived in a dark time, but he will bring luck. That's so cool. This is another green puppy named Hulk. What is going on? Though rare, it is not unheard of for dogs to be born green. Back in January, a white German shepherd in North Carolina gave birth to an unusually colored pup whose owners later named him Hulk. In 2017, a golden retriever in Scotland had a strangely colored offspring. He's really green. If you can see this picture, he is like pistachio green and the other ones are beige. So that's so weird. Um, okay, the green fur is caused by a pigment. Oh, okay, mixing with the puppy's amniotic fluid. See, I, I'm just like, what is happening with these puppies? Six legs, green fur, 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, I thought that was, you know, kind of neat. Anyways, um, we'll move on from our puppy friends. All right. So, um, before we get into the controllers, let's just quickly read this article. I wanted to share this. I thought this was very well done from Chronicles Magazine. It's called Effeminate Cruelty. The Tyrants of the Modern Era Have Limp Wrists by Anthony Esselin. Many years ago, Samuel Francis, and for those who don't know, the great Samuel Francis wrote the, the seminal work called Beautiful Losers, essentially way ahead of his time. He was writing in the 1980s how the conservative establishment was useless and basically nonsense. That keen critic of American politics and culture coined the term anarcho-tyranny to describe a condition that would seem at least paradoxical, if not self-contradictory. When we think of anarchy, we imagine rioters in the streets, looting, setting fires, and spraying the neighborhood with bullets, Chicago on steroids beneath the law. When we think of tyranny, we imagine the tyrant, the autocrat above the law, whose diktat is law, and who keeps order below, as would Machiavelli's ambitious, cold-eyed, Italy-uniting prince, that we could have both at once seems inconceivable. But so it is, said Francis in America. Our betters not only break the law with impunity, they make the law outside of the legislator with impunity, either by judicial imagination or by the caprice of the bureaucrat. Then they apply it to whom they will, how they will, and when they will. When statutory law is a jungle of regulations whose smallest feature no man alive can master, when law is ever at you, crawling up your leg, catching in your hair, glaring at you from the thicket as it is, as if there were no law at all, then you are subject to your masters who hold the guns. Yet my imaginary, my imagery above, I fear, is in one important respect all wrong. It is masculine. That does not fit our time. We are not talking about Machiavellian virtue, manhood. Machiavelli himself countenanced cruelty as a necessary evil for princes governing new states, which are always full of dangers or for a general such as Hannibal, who kept order among his troops in an alien land only by his inhuman cruelty, which, along with his boundless manhood, made him in the eyes of his soldiers most venerable and terrible. Cruelty, for its own sake, destroys the cruel, as it destroyed the Roman emperor Carcalla. Machiavelli recalled in The Prince that Carcalla on several occasions, quote, put to death a great part of the people of Rome and all of the people of Alexandria, so that he was loathed by all the world and came to be feared by the men around him and was at last assassinated by a centurion in the very midst of his army, unquote. We do not suffer these 
Caesar Borgia does not sit on a federal bench. Cannibal does not run your local Planned Parenthood. Carcala is not the dean of university and inclusion at Protection University. The masculine cruelty of past eras is direct, open, and brutish. We can find it in the demonic character of Milton's Moloch, who was first to speak at the Council of Pandemonium in Paradise Lost, longing for annihilation, and therefore urging his fellow demons to wage open war. Let us rather choose, armed with hell flames and fury all at once, over heaven's high towers to force restless way, turning our tortures into horrid arms against the torturer. Effeminate cruelty is instead indirect, furtive, and humane. We find it in the timorous Belial, the counter to Moloch, given to the lewd and luxurious as witness the streets of Sodom, and that night in Gabea, when the hospital door exposed a matron to avoid worse rape. Belial is, by comparison with Moloch, an act more graceful and humane. His tongue dropped manna and could make the worse appear, the better reason to perplex and dash maturest counsels, for his thoughts were low to vice industrious, but to nobler deeds, timorous and slothful, yet he pleased at the ear. He recommends not that the devils repent and beg God for mercy, but that they lie low and make no stir so that God may not mind us not offending. He, like the rioters he inspires, blown with insolence and wine, is a coward. In the battle in heaven with Satan and his minions use gunpowder and cannon to gain advantage uh, of surprise over the loyal angels, and they are no match for them hand to hand. This same effeminate and weakling Belial stands beside Satan, scoffing and laughing. Milton was on to something about an effeminate side of evil that can be applied to Francis's concept. The active mode of anarcho-tyranny is effeminate cruelty. In our time, this cruelty assumes these characteristic forms which have been institutionalized. Indeed, we cannot understand our bureaucratic institutions, whether public or private, unless we address the cruelty that shapes them and gives them their power. Hatred of the natural is the first form of effeminate cruelty Permit me to illustrate by noting the shift from the nature-loving prose of the early romantic writers to the courting of the unnatural among their successors closer to our own time. When Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther in 1774, he assumed that his readers loved the homely beauty of hills and trees and streams that they cherished the innocence of small children and that they knew that lads and lasses are meant to fall in love with one another. When the young painter Werther first meets Charlotte, she is in the midst of a large and cheerful family with six siblings aged two to 12 years old who she loves and cares for. The villagers, the villagers have arranged for a big dance and Werther is going along when his coach full of young people stops at her house she was holding a loaf of black bread 
and cut for each of her little ones around her a slice according to their years and appetite. She gave it with such friendliness that each one artlessly cried out, thanks, with his little hands stretched high even before the slice was cut and satisfied with his evening bread, jumped away or with a quieter disposition, walked off to the gate to look at the coach and the strangers with whom Lot was going away. The holiness of childhood and home is for Werther an absolute value, and his own is associated in his mind, not with the old lady who penned up our childhood in the schoolhouse, but with a pond where he and the other boys went to skip stones to see how far they would go. His love for Lot finds its local habitation in her small house and the fountain where he and she first sit together and speak about love. I love best of all, the author, says Lot, as they talk about Oliver Goldsmith's novel, The Vicar of Wakefield, in whom I find my world, for whom things go as they go for me, and yet whose story is as interesting and moving as my own life at home. True, it is no paradise, but all in all, it's a source of happiness beyond words. There would be no sorrows for Werther except that Lot is betrothed to a young man named Albert, a manly fellow who takes Werther up as a friend. Albert and Lot marry, and Werther cannot or will not break away from his sorrow. There is no doubt a certain effeminacy in his tears and his refusal to harden his heart against his feelings. His behavior toward Lot in the end is treacherous. He betrays her into a moment of passionate kisses and a confession of love, then, hopeless, with no place in the world he can call his own, he takes his own life. But his final letter is filled with wishes for the good of those he loves, and even to Albert he is kind. I have repaid you ill, Albert, and you forgive me. I have troubled the peace of your house. I have brought mistrust between you. Be well. I wanted to end. Oh, that you too might be happy by my death. Albert, Albert, make the angel happy and let the blessing of God come to dwell above you. Move forward to 1906 in the gray morning of our last and misbegotten century. In the confusions of young Torless, Robert Musel, a young Australian novelist without religious faith, a son of the German Enlightenment, but with the flickering hope in the same, takes a version of Ghost Werther to a military school and a whorehouse. The novel is praised for its prescience, and Musel turned a merciless glance toward the psychological diseases that would bloom forth in Nazism. What we notice first in Musel's anti-goat is what is missing. There are no dances, no small children, no family life, no fountains, no running streams, no nut trees, no faith in God, no love of the beautiful, no honest confession of a single genuine feeling. The only significant woman is a rattled old whore who sneers at the boys when they pay her for an hour of filth. The action begins when two boys, Benenberg and Writing, discover that a third boy, the effeminate Bezzini, has stolen some money to pay off a small debt. They reveal the discovery to the novel's protagonist, Torless, along with their plan to torture him. Benenberg is already an intellectual of emptiness, having caught a touch of Eastern mysticism from his father, a soldier in India. All things are vain. 
except as they press forward into the unknown and unthinkable. All of the stuff we do all day long in school, what if it really has any purpose? Where can you really have something? I mean, to have it for yourself, understand? The evening comes and you know that you've lived one more day and that you've learned thus and so and you've done your homework, but the very thing leaves you empty still, empty inside. I mean, you have a holy inward hunger. How do you satisfy the hunger? Feinberg and his conspirator Reitling, whom he hates, accuse Bazzini and subject him to blackmail and humiliation. The site is not outdoors, but indoors, a cubbyhole tucked behind a stairwell in the sprawling old school building, a place known only to Beinberg, Reitling, and Torless. There they plan to bring Bazzini for punishment? Not exactly, says Beinberg. You're wrong if you believe that I'm so bent on punishment. I admit that in the end, you might call it a punishment for him, but not to waste words about it, I have something else in mind. I want, let's say it for once, I want to torture him. That they do. They strip him naked and they whip him to a bloody mess. Torless watches. That is not all they do. As Bazzini tells Torless things, with him and a curious brew of cruelty and lust to see how low he will stoop. Reitling has him read stories of cruelty too, says Bazzini, about Rome and the Caesars, about the Borgias and the Timur, the Khan, you know, always such great bloody things. Then he's even gentle with me, and most of the time he beats me up afterwards. As for Bainberg, not the body, but the soul arouses him to cruelty. He talks a lot about fakirs, says Bazzini, who, once they have looked upon their souls, can be insensitive to all bodily pain. Finally, when the school is mostly empty for the holidays, Bazzini approaches the bed where Torless is sleeping and lays his naked body beside him. You're not as rough as they are, and you don't make yourself a big shot. You're gentle. I love you. The beauty of his body stuns Torless, arousing in him a new aimless hunger. It has nothing to do with love. Torless later becomes, says Musil, in a brief and ironic flash forward after he had overcome the experiences of his youth, a young man of a very fine and sensitive spirit. Who would say that a little poison was necessary to take away the all too secure and placid house of the soul and replace it with something finer and sharper and more knowledgeable? We have here a whiff of disease. Bertrand Russell in his coterie landed, lauding the higher sodomy. The seedy Mr. Eugenides in Eliot's The Wasteland inviting the speaker to a weekend at the Metropole the effete Gustav von Aschenbach of Thomas Mann's death in Venice, falling in love with a pretty Polish boy with whom he does not dare to speak. It's the notion either that culture has lapsed into the dreary and unnatural, or that the unnatural is what makes for culture to begin with. Sodom alone is artistic in this view, for other than a residual sense of the picturesque and an abstract and usually inhumane commitment to the environment or the planet, neither of which a man can actually experience, 
we subject ourselves rather tamely to the most unnatural violations of human nature and human longings. There is a consonance between homosexual sex advice columnist Dan Savage being invited to speak to school children and the veneration on the left for abortion rights philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson, who says that uh, carrying a child to term is like being hooked up to a concert violinist against your will to provide life support. Of course, no one would permit the hazing that occurs in Musil's no novel to go unpunished now. Hazing is not to our taste. It is still too straightforward. Instead, we trammel our children up in boxes with greater harm to the boys than to the girls. And we look the other way as they waste their youth in the deserts of online fantasy and disease. Ambiguity the second form of effeminate cruelty thus springs from the first. It is a soft tyranny, a labyrinth of indirection, a bureaucratic padding, impenetrable layers of fat. Cock as the trial comes to mind. You are guilty, but you do not know what you are guilty of. You cannot know because you have violated no statute, no clear rule. Men and boys do not get the indirectness of this cruelty. They are the great inventors of complex games with boundaries setting apart fair or foul. Goals, the home plate, the end zone. Laws, no holding, no cheating, and penalties. No game is conceivable without these elements. Masculine law works in the same way. This is the statute, that is your violation. Here is the evidence. There are the attorneys and the judge and the jury to weigh the evidence according to such and such criteria. And these are the consequences. These clear rules are artificial in the basic sense, they are man-made, but it is natural for men as the clear expression of their sense of hierarchically organized brotherhood. Beavers build dams, men and boys build games. What characterizes the dystopia of George Orwell's novel, 1984, is not so much its Soviet-style ugliness, dirt, and brutality, but the lawlessness of its law. There is no game with clear rules there. Smy, the malevolent linguist, grows enthusiastic as he describes to Winston Smith the cunning of newspeak, which will make rebellion impossible by making it literally unthinkable. But he sees too much, and one day, as Smith expects, Smy does not show up for work, and his coworkers know him no more. Smith himself will be caught, not for violating any law, but merely for being under suspicion of opposing the state and Big Brother. There is no public auto de fe for him, no fires of faith, no clear doctrines to which he must assent, no inquisitor, torquemada, nothing so human as that. His tormentor, O'Brien, is but a portly, bespeckled fellow whose silent glance of intelligence at the office has deceived Smith into believing that O'Brien sympathizes with him. Alas, O'Brien does, does sympathize with him. He knows what Smith feels and can use it to subtly manipulate, domesticate, and destroy him. 
One can no more imagine O'Brien challenging Winston Smith with direct violations of the law than one can imagine the diversity and inclusion officer at your place of employment doing so. No, the attack is against attitude, tone, and wrong think. We rightly fear the social credit system that Red China has put in place, which will impoverish you if you have the wrong friends or if you worship at a Christian church, or if you express opinions contrary to those of the great mother of us all, the state. China has merely made clear, organized, and efficient what in the post-Christian West is unclear, amorphous, and efficient in its sheer inefficiency. China terrifies the West's mothers. The masculine terrorist with bombs and machine guns makes you afraid to leave your home because you never know when or where he might strike. The effeminate terrorist makes you afraid to speak your mind, or even, after a while, to have a mind to speak. Behind his smile, so humane and gentle, you never know when or how he or she or Z or her is going to move to ruin you. Our universities morphine for thought, give ample proof. Gone are the days when Anselm could write Porcelagon, his attempt to prove by logic alone the necessary existence of a being greater than which no being can be conceived and maintain his compo composure when the monk Ganilo responded with severe criticism. Neither Anselm nor Ganilo descended into the murk of hurt feelings and bureaucratic sanctions. They merely focused on the merits of their arguments. When Descartes wrote his first discourse, he sent it to his friend, the polymath priest Martin Mersenne, and he and Descartes and others fought it out over a series of exchanges. Descartes was a shy man, a hypochondriac, but his behavior in the controversy was clearly masculine. Everyone assumed that personal feelings were not pertinent. Truth was the aim, and an honest quest for truth was a sufficient defense. But truth is no longer a sufficient defense within the university, it is only in part due to postmodern agnosticism. It is also due to the abandonment of the game by intellectual weaklings. They cannot win by the rules, so they turn to indirection and bureaucratic maneuvering. Tell me what I have said that is wrong, cried Luther and Cardinal Cajadin, took it upon him no more. Right or wrong is not the point. Violating an etiquette, one without clear rules, which depends upon the vagaries of the people in power to interpret it ad hoc and to their advantage, that is the point when the truth hurts, weep, which leads me to the third and final form of effeminate cruelty. Oh, very good, Electronom. I think this is a fantastic description of <laughs> what we're experiencing now. It certainly is effeminate and amorphous and indirect and under the banner of humane and humanistic and philanthropy. You know what I mean? 
the cult of the victim is the most soul-sapping and vicious of the effeminate cruelties. It is not natural for men to be proud of having lost the battle. Of course, if you fight your best in a true game and you lose, you have nothing to be ashamed of. We boys were instructed by our little league coaches to line up and shake hands with the other team after the game was over. They were better or luckier on that day, and that was the end of it. General William Sherman, who did not spa uh, spare the South in his devastating march to Savannah, yet had no desire to humiliate his enemies. His generous treatment of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest and his men cost him politically in Washington, but earned from Forrest a warm and manly admiration and friendship. The loser is not to be reduced to a victim merely you are what you are by your courage and faith, not by your loss. The cult of the victim is a perversion of Christian suffering, just as the pretense of bureaucracies to comfort victims is a perversion of Christian charity. Let this cup pass from me, Jesus prayed in the garden. He did not embrace suffering for its own sake. Father, forgive them, he said upon the cross, attaching no terms to the forgiveness. Blessed are you, he says to his disciples, when men persecute you for the sake of the truth to which they would testify with their lives. The smug and grumbling men of Corneth compelled Paul to recount what he suffered for Christ, being whipped bludgeoned, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, ever on the road and exposed to danger, sleepless, hungry, thirsty, cold, exposed. He does not beg for pity. He is too much the fighter for that, as his favorite form of imagery out of fashion in our Christian effeminocracy reveals. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth about your waist and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. Christian men are called to fight. Yet the most common hymnals in Roman Catholic churches in the United States contain no fighting hymns, no soldiers of Christ arise, no rise up, O men of God. Similarly, the liberal Protestant denominations and their pastorellas have reduced truth in doctrine to having the right sentiments. If masculine men fall away from the faith as a result, so much the more comfortable their services will be. Christians have been made to feel shame for their victories, even which, when such victories have extended learning, law, agriculture, technology, and other blessings of civilization to Stone Age tribes. Think of the great Junipero Serra and his conferers in California. You have no moral cachet in our time unless you can play the victim. Most of the time, it is sheer fantasy. For example, because sodomites used to be punished under the law, they now get points as victims, even if the biggest risk they face is what they bring on themselves in a Seattle bathhouse. <laughs> it's so true. Um, 
Effeminocracy, I know, that's a really good term. I think that's fantastic. Because the exigencies of human existence until recently made it nearly impossible for women to have a life outside of hearth and home, if you're a woman today, you get points as a victim, even as you drive comfortably in man-made cars on man-made roads between man-made buildings. Why, if you are Margaret Atwood, the third-rate novelist of The Handmaid's Tale, oh my gosh, I hate that, that TV show, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, how many of you guys have watched that show? It's so ridiculous, and it's just pure propaganda. It's propaganda for, like, insane feminists who still think that they're somehow victims and it just is a total fantasy land that doesn't exist in reality. But you see these people dressing up in the handmaidens' outfits to, for their stupid little protests, showing exactly that they live in a fantasy land, that they, they have no connection to reality. It's like the theater of the absurd. You go gauzy-eyed over a dreamed-up dystopia wherein women one day will be truly oppressed. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because blacks were enslaved 150 years ago, if your skin is dark now, even if you're not a descendant of those slaves, you get points as a victim regardless of whether your own poor decisions drag on you like a ball and chain. John Callahan didn't push the cocaine your way. Jefferson Davis didn't get your girlfriend pregnant. Robert E. Lee didn't tempt you to play video games when you should have been reading books. Cruelty it is because of what it does to those who think they have nothing to offer the world that is finer than their victimhood. It makes them out to be patsies, filled with resentment at those who are not so. It is bad for a happily married woman to meet the sneer of the feminist who scorns her for depending on her husband. It is worse to be a woman discouraged by the sneer that she acts against her own happiness. It is worst of all to be the feminist oneself. It is bad to be a young black man reading and enjoying Shakespeare meeting the sneers of his black classmates who call him white inside. It is worse to be that fellow who could and should be in love with learning, having his heart cut out by the contempt and courting indifference instead of interest and failure instead of triumph. It is worst of all to be those who would do this to him, confirming themselves in their own incapacity. What we have is a self-perpetuating and self-destructive falsehood. Women encouraged to look on all men as brutes eager to hurt them, fail to marry. Living alone, they are far more likely than their married mothers were to be victims of violent crime. Blacks encouraged to look upon whites as inveterate enemies begin to dress, talk, and act in antisocial ways so they keep racism burning even when interracial marriage is widely accepted without hesitation. Meanwhile, we stray farther from the natural and society-building bonds of love, husband and wife, brother and brother, mother and child. We can see to our governors the power to direct the most intimate matters of our lives, 
and we avoid all questions of truth, instead adopting the pose of victims, weak, effeminate, tumorous, and vindictive, ruling by gossip, spying, innuendo, and fainting spells. Men, we must come to our senses. We must make no more apologies for being men. We pity those who suffer real wounds, and we have mercy on those who beg forgiveness for their wrongs and clemency and punishment. But we will not make nice with lies. We will not be servile. We will confirm the goodness of the natural relations of man and women. We will, if need be, tell bureaucrats to their faces that they are cowards. We will be free men. We will seek the truth wherever it lies, and we will speak freely about what we see. Enough already. I thought that was a pretty good, um, pretty good article, and I liked the description of the effeminate ocracy. <laughs> so funny. That's so true. There is an effeminate cruelty about the way that social justice works because it's being done under the banner of you know helping the oppressed and you know you guys know what i mean it's ridiculous and it's all based on lies these people are not oppressed and that's not at all what they're doing all right, so moving on, we're going to go back to where we left off yesterday when we were talking about uh, gang stalking as community policing. Because remember, this is what the social justice psychopaths are trying to impose here in the United States. King James True says, I miss manly men. I think we all do, right? I mean, nobody likes the sniveling, um, creepy dude that's like scheming in the background because he's too much of a coward to just say what he thinks to people's faces. You know, he, he's in the background, like making, gossiping, spreading lies and rumors to try to take people out. That's such a bitch move. That's such a female way of acting, spreading gossip and, you know, things like this. That is so feminine. And it's not what men used to do. They used to, like, challenge each other to duels and stuff. I'm not saying, like, we need to have duels now, but you can at least have the decency and the spine to operate in the open. You know what I mean? Anyways, it's beta, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, wearing their skinny jeans. <laughs> yep, that's right. Um, okay, so uh, now talking about who gets targeted with the, the gang stalking. And remember, we read other names for gang stalking. It's essentially COINTELPRO. Um, some of the other phrases for this were like the red squads that the communists used to employ. Um, other words for this is organized harassment, group stalking, community mobbing. I thought those were pretty good, um, 
pretty good alternative names for gang stalking because there are, of course, uh, connotations with that phrase now where people just automatically lump that with like somehow being a conspiracy theorist and that's ridiculous. Gang stalking can happen to anyone, but it is being widely used on minorities, outspoken individuals, whistleblowers, dissidents, people who go up against large wealthy corporations, women's groups, single women because they're easy targets, anti-war proponents and other individual, other innocent individuals. The majority of the targets are not aware this is happening to them and it continues for years. Even when a target moves, changes jobs, the harassment still continues. Every time the target moves, the government or local intelligence fusion center or unit of the police will follow them around and start to spread the same lies and slander to their new employers, coworkers, landlords, etc. Well, this is just like the effeminate tyranny that we just read about. The spreading rumors about them and lies and slander. That is very female. It's a very female thing to do. What are the goals of this campaign? The goal is to isolate the target from all forms of support so that the target can be set up in the future for arrest, institutionalization, or forced suicide. Other goals of this harassment include sensitize the target to everyday stimulus as a form of control. These people also want to make the targets of this harassment vulnerable. They want to make them destitute. The secondary goal seems to be to make the targets homeless, jobless, give them a breakdown, and the primary goal seems to be to drive the target to forced suicide just like they did with some of the targets of COINTELPRO, who gang stalks. So yeah, that's actually a very good point. If you recall, during the civil rights movement, COINTELPRO was used on people like Martin Luther King Jr., and they tried to get him to kill himself. There is evidence of this in the FBI files, where they were sending him notes telling him to kill himself. People from all walks of life are being recruited to be the eyes and ears of the state, just like in East Germany. People from all races, ages, genders, and walks of life. You have your garden variety snitches. You have general laborers, the very wealthy, bikers, drug dealers, drug users, street people, punks, hip-hop culture, KKK, Black activists, church groups, youth groups, and every sector of society that you can think of is part of this. The ages range from 5 to 85 and older. The surprising thing is that gang stalkers can be found in every level of society. There is no real age barrier, gender barrier, and a variety of races do participate. In almost every occupation and society, you can find people who are going along with this. Gang stalking is, for some, seen as a game of cat and mouse. They see themselves as heroic spies for the state. Some are just power-hungry, slithering, money-hungry snitches who would sell their mothers down the drain, much less innocent people. 
Others are asked to do it out of a sense of patriotic duty. Others are forced to take part in the spying activity. Many do not understand or care that the end consequence of this game is to destroy a person. Now, here's what I would posit. A lot of the people participating in this don't know they're doing it or don't understand why they're doing it. If they're able to mind control people um, to the point like what the things that we were reading about the other day, the synthetic telepathy, if they're able to stimulate certain areas of the brain, it operates on the unconscious level. You don't know you're being manipulated. So some folks that may be participating in this activity, they might not know they're doing it or why they're doing it. I mean, that's the thing. So I'm not sure how many people are actually um, actively like choosing to participate in that. Um, why people take part. There are many reasons someone takes part in this activity. Some do it for the sense of power that it gives them. Others do this as a way to make friends and keep friends. It is something social and fun for them to do. Others are forced or blackmailed by the state or police into taking part. They are told that they are part of homeland or national security and being used to keep an eye on dangerous individuals. Others are just local thugs or informants who are already being used for other activities. So their energies are just diverted into these community spy programs. Some may be given the choice of spying for the state or the police versus going to jail. So where does this take place? This harassment occurs out in public as well as in private. The goal of this modern day COINTELPRO program is to have the target under stress 24 seven. Once a person is chosen for this harassment, the police of the state are quick to start an investigation into their lives. They will find out everything about a target where they live, who their friends are, their family, where they work, where they shop, their most intimate habits. Then they will try to get into every aspect. And I do mean every aspect of a target's life. They will try to wiretap phones, link into cell phone signals, monitor internet activity, divert email and email. They hijack your life. They want you to feel like they are in charge of your life 24 seven. They also want you to know that this is going on. It is a way to psychologically immobilize and cripple a target. The people around you who you thought you could once trust are forced to keep quiet and often take part in this ritual of a thousand paper cuts that is des designed to destroy the target over time. Um, techniques used. A, whole, a large part of this harassment involves psychological harassment of the targets. To achieve this, a profile of the target is gathered and then a, profile, a program of harassment is implemented using many of the methods below. Brighting. As targets walk on the street, usually at night, suburban spies will turn on their high beams. This might be flashed once or twice at targets. The idea is to intimidate the target and let them know they're being watched at all times. Crowding and mobbing. When the target is in public, suburban spies will usually try to box the target in. 
They will surround the target in a square-like formation if possible. They will stand too close to the target or swarm them. Directed conversations. These are conversations that complete strangers will have out in public relating to the target in their personal situations. They will repeat things a target said in their home or on their phone. They will let drop very personal details into the conversation that could only be related to the target. Example, spy one, it's a shame Uncle Ed won't be able to come. Spy two, yeah, since he died golfing on Saturday, the target will have just learned of a death of a favored uncle, possibly named Ed while out golfing. So that's the kind of thing they'll say. It's something that a stranger would have no way of knowing, but that you know, like you know that this is something you just heard about, just talked about on the phone or whatever. So it's doing stuff to, to let you know that, to drive you kind of crazy, like that these people are just out there talking about your personal life. How would that make you feel? Directed energy weapons, Electronic harassment, usually when they feel they have psychologically targeted a target to where they're near a breakdown, they will start to use these weapons. They will also use these weapons if targets are not going along with their harassment protocol. Investigation files. It has been indicated targets will have files shown to relatives, storekeepers, and friends. The files are usually not left behind, but they are used to show legitimacy and to further slander targets. They're also used to get the participation and cooperation of the people in the target's life with their harassment. The files might have a picture of the target and lies or slanderous information about some alleged crime that they might be responsible for. The information is not true, but it's usually very convincing and helps further to get targets harassed by those around them gaslighting, doing little things to try to make the target think they're going crazy, coming into their homes, moving their furniture around, changing clothing they bought and replacing it with similar but inferior items, taking small items and then replacing them later on, gassing and poisoning, spraying fumes or scents into a target's home, tampering with their food to make them ill, illegal entry, to gaslight the target, it is used to help profile the target, to set up illegal surveillance. It is a way to find out intimate details about the target. This can be used later to set the target up by using people in photo albums or by directed conversations about things in the target's apartment. Illegal surveillance. This involves setting up audio and visual surveillance of the target, bugging the target's phone or using external listening devices. Video surveillance inside or most, uh, most likely outside the target's residence listening to cell phone and hardline conversations, hacking into their computers and learning all about what the target is doing, the websites they frequent. This also helps to build a profile of the target and can later be used for psychological attacks against the target. Illuminating targets. This is something the East German Stasi secret police did to targets. They would spray the target's clothing with materials that would make them glow or would irradiate the targets with x-rays so that they glowed in the dark. There are harmful and harmless chemicals that will achieve this effect. Read story intimate infiltration. This is where suburban spies will go out of their way to get into a target's life. They will try to form friendships with targets. 
They will try to form intimate relationships with targets. They will get close to people that are affiliated with targets. Years before the target ever realizes that they are targets, they will try to get into a target's life. If they can't get into your life, but you have a best friend, their new significant other might just be a suburban spy. The same thing goes for siblings and the people that enter their lives. Isolation. This, uh, for this harassment to be successful, it's important to be able to isolate the target from friends, family members, coworkers, and spouses. To accomplish this isolation, many methods are used, including but not limited to slander, lies, files, sabotage, anything that will get the target into a situation where they have no support system. This is important for this COINTELPRO-like harassment to succeed. They have to have you so that nobody can, can help you or nobody wants to help you. Mail and email tampering. Suburban spies will steal your mail. They will delay the delivery of your mail and they will make sure your mail does not arrive. The other thing they're known for is tampering of email. They'll delay email, delete email, and stop email you have sent from arriving. Mimicking. This is trying to copy things in a target's life. Leaving when they do, dressing like they dress, throwing out the garbage, going into the bathroom, doing whatever the target is doing. This is all designed to be psychological warfare. So the target again feels like they're under observation at all times. Profiling. Targets will be observed and profiled long before they ever become aware they are targeted for this form of harassment. Profiles will be created on targets by following them, following people close to them, breaking into their homes and going through their things, listening to their calls, hacking into their computers, gathering information on friends and family, seeing where they like to shop and eat, what are their weaknesses, what are things they like and dislike. This can all be used to put together a profile and target them, then get them into situations for their detriment. Random encounters. This will be people on the street who you randomly and unexpectedly run into. It looks completely natural and seems to be a random encounter. They might ask you for your phone number after engaging you in conversation, ask you out, or just ask where you are going. Any form of small talk to get to lengthier conversations, all with the purpose of finding out something about you or even just getting you to do something. Ruined relationships. When the targets are in a relationship, suburban spies will try to ruin that relationship. This could be friendships, family, or significant others. If it is a romantic relationship, they will find out what your significant other likes and try to get them to cheat or leave you. If it is a friendship, they will tell lies to come between you. The same goes for family. This is done so targets will have no means of support once they realize something is going wrong in their lives. Sensitization. This is getting targets sensitive to everyday stimuli, colors, patterns, or everyday actions. Red, stripes, pens, whistles, loud coughing, clapping, waves, keys jingling. Joe will be mobbed at work, and as part of that daily mobbing, his coworkers will loudly cough at him every time they harass him by calling him names like loser, worthless, lame, demented. They will slander him and have others they are slandering him show disgust by glaring and coughing at him. 
out in public, they will follow him loudly and obnoxiously coughing at him. When he goes by stores, they'll get others to do the same. After months or years of this, Joe has become sensitive to the stimuli, and it can be used to harass him without the names and glaring looks. The association has been formed because of the harassment. Example, a girl is sexually assaulted, and a sock is shoved in her mouth during the assault. To keep her quiet or stop her from pressing charges, the assailant, his friends and family, will follow her around and throw socks in her path, mention it where she goes, and show her their socks every chance they get. She'll get the message they are sending because of the brutal attack she and what has happened after she is now sensitized to this. Signals and symbols. So this goes on. Uh, it's a long list. It is in your show prep. You can read the rest of this, but now, because we only have 30 minutes left, I want to get to The Controllers by Martin Cannon. Um, if you were listening in the beginning, uh, when I first came on, I was telling people that this is a 60-page like research paper, and um, the guy who wrote it ended up like recanting it. He ended up um, saying something along the lines of, uh, all this has done has caused me problems or whatever. And then he contacted like every website that had shared this and asked them to take it down. So that's bizarre. Um, but anyways, it's a very interesting paper. I read this a few years ago before I guess he started having these taken down. It's kind of hard to find now but it, it was called a new hypothesis of alien abduction. And he basically posits that this is sort of like mind control. And I think that's true, although I'm not discounting the, um, I'm not discounting that there could be like interdimensional entities. What are demons, right? Who knows? I mean, we just don't know what we don't know, right? So I'm not saying that this is not possible. But I am saying that um, I think this is a good hypothesis for what is happening with people that felt like they were being abducted by aliens. Because as we read about, it's a very, the things they described is very similar to the procedure of having a brain ship implanted, right? Among other things. All right, introduction. One WAG has dubbed the problem Terra and the Pirates. The Pirates, ostensibly, are marauders from another solar system. Their victims include a growing number of troubled human beings who insist they've been shanghaied by these otherworldly visitors, an outlandish scenario. Yet through the works of such authors as Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber, the alien abduction syndrome has seized the public imagination. Indeed, tales of UFO contact threaten to lapse into fashionability, even though, as I have elsewhere noted, they may still inflict a formidable social price upon the claimant. Some time ago, I began to research these claims, concentrating my studies on the social and political environment surrounding these events. As I studied, the project grew and its scope widened, Indeed, I began to feel as though I'd gone digging through familiar terrain only to un unearth Gomorrah. These excavations may have disgorged a solution. The problem. Among ufologists, 
the term abduction has come to refer to an infinitely confounding experience or matrix of experiences shared by a dizzying number of individuals who claim that travelers from the stars have scooped them out of their beds or snatched them from their cars and subject them to interrogations, quasi-medical ex examinations, and instruction periods. Usually these sessions are said to occur within alien spacecraft. Frequently, the stories include terrifying details reminiscent of the tortures inflicted in Germany's death camps. The abductees often, though not always, lose all memories of these events. They find themselves back in their cars or beds, unable to account for hours of missing time. Hypnosis or some other trigger can bring back these haunted hours in an explosion of recollection. And as the smoke clears, the abductee will often spot a trail of similar experiences, stretching all the way back to childhood. Perhaps the oddest fact of these odd tales Many abductees, for all their vividly recollected agonies, claim to love their alien tormentors. That's the word I've heard repeatedly, love. Within the community of scientific ufologists, those lonely, all too little heard advocates of reasonable and open-minded debate on matters saucerological, these claims have elicited cautious interest and a commendable restraint from the conclusion hopping. Outside the higher realms of scientific ufology, the situation is, alas, quite different. In the popular press, in both the straight and sensationalist media, within that journalistic realm, where issues are defined and public opinion solidified, despite a frequently superficial approach to matters of evidence and investigation, abduction scenarios have elicited two basic reactions, that of the believer and of the skeptic, the believers. And here we should note that believers and abductees are two groups whose memberships overlap, but are in no way congruent, except such stories at face value. They accept, despite the seeming absurdity of these tales, the internal contradictions, the askew logic of narrative construction, the severe discontinuity of emotional response to the actions described. The believers believe, despite reports, that their beloved space brothers use vile and inhuman tactics of medical examination, senseless procedures, most of us, and certainly the vanguard of an advanced race, would be ashamed to inflict on an animal. The believers believe, despite the difficulty of reconciling these unsettling tales with their own deliriums of benevolent off-worlders, Occasionally, the rough notes of a rationalization are offered. The aliens don't know what they are doing, we hear, or some aliens are bad. Yet the believers confound their own reasoning when they insist on ascribing the wisdom of the ages and the beneficence of the angels to their beloved visitors. The aliens allegedly know enough about our society to go about their business undetected by the local authorities and the general public. They communicate with the abductees in human tongue. They concern themselves with the details of the percipient's innermost lives, yet they remain so ignorant of our culture as to be unaware of the basic moral precepts concerning the dignity of the individual and the right to self-determination. 
Such dictamies don't bother the believers. They are the faithful, and faith is assumed to have its mysteries. Sancta Simplicatus. Conversely, the skeptics dismiss these stories out of hand. They dismiss, despite the intriguing confirmatory details, the multiple witness events, the physical traces left by the UFO knots, the scars and implants left on the abductees. The skeptics scoff, though the abductees tell similar stories in detail, even certain tiny details not known to the general public. Philip Class is a debunker who, though his appearances on such television programs as Nova and Nightline, has been in a position to affect much of the public debate on UFOs. In his interestingly but poorly documented work on abductions, Class claims that abduction is a psychological disease spread by those who write about it. This argument exactly resembles the professional press basher's frequent assertion that terrorism metastasizes through media exposure. Yet for all the millions of words expectorated by news folk on the subject of terrorism, terrorist action remains quite rare, as any statistician, though few politicians, will admit. And verifiable linkages between crimes and their coverage remains to be found. For that matter, there have been books, bestsellers even, on unicorns and gnomes. People who claim to see these creatures are few. Abductees are plentiful. Both believer and skeptic, in my opinion, miss the real story. Both make the same mistake. They connect the abduction phenomenon to the 40-year history of UFO sightings, and they apply their prejudices about the latter to the controversy about the former. At first sight, the link seems natural. Shouldn't our thoughts about UFOs color our thoughts about UFO abductions? No, they may well be separate issues, or rather, they are connected only in this. The myth of the UFO has provided an effective cover story for an entirely different sort of mystery. Remove yourself from the believer-skeptic dialectic and you will see the third alternative. As we examine this alternative, we will of necessity stray far from the saucers. We must turn our face from the paranormal and concentrate on the occult, if by occult we mean secret. I posit that abductees have been abducted, yet they are also spewing fantasy, or more precisely, they have been given a set of lies to repeat and believe. If my hypothesis proves true, then we must accept the following. The kidnapping is real. The fear is real. The pain is real. The instruction is real. But the little gray men from Zeta Reticuli are not real. They are constructs, Halloween masks meant to disguise the real faces of the controllers. The abductors may not be visitors from beyond. Rather, they may be a symptom of the carcinoma which blackens our body politic. The fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. The hypothesis. Substantial evidence exists linking members of this country's intelligence community, including the CIA, DARPA, and the Office of Naval Intelligence with the esoteric technology of mind control. For decades, spy psychiatrists 
I like that term, spychiatrist. Those like psychiatrists that are spies, right? That's <laughs> that's what they really are. And I think that this is um, a very good uh, term for them. Spy, spy psychiatrists working behind the scenes on college campuses and CIA-sponsored institutes and most heinously in prisons have experimented with the erasure of memory. Remember what we talked about the other day, uh, EDOM, E-D-O-M, Electronic Disillusion of Memory. That's one of these programs that was part of that list of the mind control programs we went down. So I think that's true. Hypnotic resistance to torture, truth serums, post-hypnotic suggestion, rapid induction of hypnosis, electronic stimulation of the brain, non-ionizing radiation, microwave induction of intracerebral voices, and a host of even more disturbing technologies. Some of the projects exploring these areas were artichoke, Bluebird, Pandora, MK Delta, MK Search, and the infamous MK Ultra. I have read nearly every available book on these projects, as well as the re relevant congressional testimony. I have also spent much time in university libraries researching relevant articles and contacting other researchers who have graciously allowed me access to their files and conducting interviews. Moreover, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to review the files John Marks compiled when he wrote The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. These files include some 20,000 pages of CIA and Defense Department documents, interviews, scientific articles, letters, etc. The views presented here are the result of extensive and ongoing research. So here's the, the point I want to make now. It appears that this guy went through a lot of work, right? He spent a lot of time and resources coming up with this paper. For him to then, um, like, disown the paper and tell everybody to take it down and say it's brought him nothing but trouble, I find very bizarre. Why would you put so much time and resources into this? and then later disown it. It makes me think that perhaps he got a visit of some kind. <laughs> Just saying, right? Um, oh my goodness. Andrew Cuomo has been accused of sexual harassment. That should surprise nobody. He's always been a creep and a weirdo. I don't know why that guy still is in office. Okay, so as a result of this research, I have come to the following conclusions. Number one, although misleading and occasionally perjured testimony before Congress indicates that the CIA's brainwashing efforts met with little success, oh, BS, striking advances were, in fact, made in this field. As CIA veteran Miles Copeland once admitted to a reporter, the Congressional Subcommittee, which went into this sort of thing, got only the barest glimpse. Number two, clandestine research into thought manipulation has not stopped, despite CIA protestations that it no longer sponsors such studies. 
Victor Marchetti, 14-year veteran of the CIA and author of the renowned expose, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, confirmed in a 1977 interview that the mind control research continues and that the CIA claims to the contrary are a cover story. The Central Intelligence Agency was not the only government agency involved in this research. Indeed, many branches of our government took part in these studies, including NASA, the Atomic Energy Commission, as well as all branches of the Defense Department. To these conclusions, I would append the following, not as firmly established historical fact, but as a working hypothesis and grounds for investigation. Four, the UFO abduction phenomenon might be a continuation of clandestine mind control operations. I recognize the difficulties this thesis might present to those readers emotionally wedded to the extraterrestrial hypothesis or to those whose political wealth shame disallows any such suspicions. Still, the open-minded student of abductions should consider the possibilities. Certainly, we are not being narrow-minded. If we ask researchers to exhaust all terrestrial explanations before looking heavenward, granted this particular explanation may at first seem as bizarre as the phenomenon itself, but I invite the skeptical reader to examine the work of George Estabrooks, a seminal theorist on the use of hypnosis in warfare, a veteran of Project MKUltra, Esther Brooks once amused himself during a party by covertly hypnotizing two friends who were led to believe that the Prime Minister of England had just arrived. Esther Brooks's victims spent an hour conversing with and even serving drinks to the esteemed visitor. For ufologists, this incident raises an inescapable question. If the mesmeric arts can successfully evoke a non-existent Prime Minister, why can't a representative from the Pleiades be similarly induced? But there is much more to the present-day technology of mind control than mere hypnosis, and many good reasons to suspect that UFO abduction accounts are an artifact of continuing brainwashing slash behavior modification experiments. Moreover, I intend to demonstrate that by using UFO mythology as a cover story, the experiments may have solved the major problem with the work conducted in the 1950s, the disposal problem, the question of what do we do with the victims? If in these pages I seem to stray from the subject of the saucers, I plead for patience. Before I attempt to link UFO abductions with mind control experiments, I must first show that this technology exists. Much of the forthcoming is an introduction to the topic of mind control, what it is and how it works. The technology, a brief overview. In the early days of World War II, George Estabrooks of Colgate University wrote to the Department of War describing in breathless terms the possible use of hypnosis in warfare. The Army was intrigued. Estabrooks had a job. The true history of Estabrooks' wartime collaboration with the CID, FBI, and other agencies may never be told. 
After the war, he burned his diary pages covering the years 1940 through 45, and thereafter avoided discussing his continuing government work with anyone, even close members of the family. Occasionally, he strongly intimated that his work involved the creation of hypno-programmed couriers and hypnotically induced split personalities, but whether he succeeded in these areas remains a controversial point. Nevertheless, the eccentric and flamboyant Estabrooks remains a pivotal figure in the early history of clandestine behavioral research, which is not to say that he worked alone. World War II was the first conflict in which the human brain became a field of battle, where invading forces were led by the most notable names in psychology and pharmacology. On both sides, the war spurred furious efforts to create a truth drug for use in interrogating prisoners. General William Wild Bill Donovan, director of the OSS, tasked his crack team including Dr. Winfred Overhostler, Dr. Edward Strecker, Harry J. Anslinger, and George White, to modify human perception and behavior through chemical means. Their medicine cabinet included scopolamine, peyote, barbiturates, mescaline, and marijuana. This research had its amusing side. Donovan's quote-unquote psychic warriors conducted many extensive and expensive trials before deciding that the best method of administering tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient in marijuana, was via the cigarette. Any jazz musician could have told them as much. Simultaneously, the notorious Nazi doctors at Dachau experimented with mescaline as a means of eliminating the victim's will to resist. Jews, Slavs, and Gypsies and other Untershmen in the camp were surreptitiously slipped the drug. Later, mescaline was combined with hypnosis. The results of these tests were made available to the United States after the war. In 1947, the Navy conducted the first known post-war mind control program, Project Chapter, which continued the drug experiments. Decades later, journalists and investigators still haven't uncovered much information about this project, or indeed about any of the military's other excursions into this field. We know that the Army eventually founded Operations Third Chance and Derby Hat. Other project names remain mysterious, though the existence of these programs is unquestionable. They clearly did exist. The newly formed CIA plunged into the cesspool in 1950 with Project Bluebird, rechristened Artichoke in 1951. To establish a cover story for this research, the CIA funded a propaganda effort designed to convince the world that the communist bloc had devised insidious new methods of reshaping the human will. The CIA's own efforts could therefore, if exposed, be explained as an attempt to catch up with Soviet and Chinese work. The primary promoter of this line was one Edward Hunt, a CIA contract employee operating undercover as a journalist, ding, ding, and later a prominent member of the John Birch Society. Hunter was an OSS veteran of the China Theater, the same spawning grounds which produced Richard Hounds, Howard Hunt, 
Mitch Werbau, Fred Christman, Paul Hellerwell, and a host of other notables who came to dominate that strange land where the worlds of intelligence and right-wing extremism meet. Hunter offered brainwashing as the explanation for the numerous confessions signed by American prisoners of war during the Korean War and generally unrecanted upon the prisoners' repatriation. These confessions alleged the U.S. used germ warfare in the Korean conflict, a claim which the American public of the time found impossible to accept. Many years later, however, investigative reporters discovered Japan's germ warfare specialist who had wreaked incalculable terror on the conquered Chinese during World War II, had been mustered into the American national security apparatus, and that the knowledge gleaned from Japan's horrifying germ warfare experiments probably was used in Korea, just as the brainwashed, quote-unquote, soldiers had indicated. So we're going to leave it here. Uh, we'll pick up more on this tomorrow. It goes into a lot of other stuff that it may not be as well known. Um, how many of you had heard about uh, Project Chapter and Project Derby Hat? If you've heard of these before, put a one in live chat. If this is the first time you've heard of those two projects, put a two in live chat. So one, if yes, you've heard of these before, a two if you've never heard of them before. Uh, tonight's show because I had never heard of them before reading this. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Good, good. So we're learning new things. That's a good thing. <laughs> All right. We're going to pass this over now and we'll pick up more on that tomorrow. Um, I know that this is obviously, if this is the kind of thing they were doing in the 50s, you can just imagine what they're doing now. I mean, we often joke about the NPCs, but I'm really starting to wonder how many of these people are actual victims of these kinds of mind control programs <laughs> because you just don't know, right? All right. Yeah, project circle back, right? We're gonna circle back to this tomorrow. <laughs> All right. How are you guys doing? Coach Clay and I-70. Pretty good, Radix. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Captain Liberty is here, I see. I just, this is- Yes, the, I am. This has been the thing I have been researching for a while, and I want to get through it because I just find it very disturbing, but also highly relevant to the things going on now. You know, I'm, I'm oh, sure yes. a lot of these crazy liberals, they seem to be of- I don't know. They, I'm betting a large number of these people are very suggestible. I think that something like 80% of the population is suggestible, meaning they can be hypnotized. But then there's 20% of the population that just isn't as susceptible to this. And I'm starting to think that's us. <laughs> We're that group that can't be like hypnotized and you know, mesmerized into believing that, like, the snow is black, which, by the way, is what these mind control programs said was their goal, for people to end up believing that, like, snow is black, something that obviously untrue. And that's what we see with the leftists, that same mentality, boys can be girls, snow is black, you know, <laughs> just saying. 
Yes, yep. e plus can... two does not equal four. In fact, it can equal anything that you can really come up with uh, in a good explanation. Right, your personal truth. Thank... <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank God that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Exactly, that's right. All right, oh, guys. wearing a mask can kill off so many brain cells and make you so <laughs> stupid it could turn you into a liberal. There you go. That's true. But hey, now we have to wear four masks. That's it? Only four down there in America? <laughs> oh, man, you guys are having it easy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's where they're going next. Who knows where it will end? Exactly. Good Lord. Okay, well, we'll take it over from here, Radix. You have a great evening, and we'll see you next time. You too. Bye, guys. All right, I-70, here we go uh, on this great evening here, just after the hour of 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Perfect. Let her rip. Right, initially satellite scan. Here we go. Hello, live chat. Initiating satellite scan. 